The Holy Gospel according to St. John, the 17th chapter. I give you a word of introduction. This is the high priestly prayer taken from the high priestly prayer of Jesus, which in John's gospel happens just before he is taken away uh, to Pilate and is uh, crucified. And so it is his prayer speaking to God, his father, and talking about the disciples who will be left behind, and that's also you and me. Jesus says, I spelled out your character in detail to the men and women you gave me. They were yours in the first place, and then you gave them to me, and they have now done what you said. They know now beyond the shadow of a doubt that everything you gave me is firsthand from you. For the message you gave me, I gave them, and they took it and were convinced that I came from you. They believe that you sent me. I pray for them. I'm not praying for the God-rejecting world, but for those you gave me, for they are yours by right. Everything mine is yours, and yours mine, and my life is on display in them. For I'm no longer going to be visible in the world. They'll continue in the world while I return to you. Holy Father, guard them as they pursue this life that you conferred as a gift through me, so they can be one heart and mind, as we are one heart and mind. As long as I was with them, I guarded them in the pursuit of the life you gave through me. I even posted a night watch, and not one of them got away except for the rebel bent on destruction, the exception that proved the rule of Scripture. Now I'm returning to you, and I'm saying these things in the world's hearing so my people can experience my joy completed in them. I gave them your word. The godless world hated them because of it, because they didn't join the world's ways, just as I didn't join the world's ways. I'm not asking that you take them out of the world, but that you guard them from the evil one. They are no more defined by the world than I am defined by the world. Make them holy, consecrated with the truth. Your word is consecrating truth. In the same way that you gave me a mission in the world, I give them a mission in the world. I'm consecrating myself for their sakes, so they'll be truth consecrated in their mission. The Gospel of the Lord. You may be seated. Let us pray. Our good and gracious God, we give you thanks this morning that we can come to worship and that we can have a beautiful day. We're grateful we could be outside. We're grateful we have life, and so many of us are struggling with families or friends who are ill or struggling with cancer or operations, and we know also of one of our servants in this nation, John McCain. We grieve the loss of him as he died this weekend uh, with a glioblastoma brain tumor that we knew would be fatal, but not so quickly. We give thanks for his example of being um, truly a servant and of a truth teller in his own way. We thank you for his uh, service in the military, serving our nation as a senator for 40 years, I think, and and for all the ways that he put others ahead of himself. Help us, Lord, 
to, um, to emulate those among us that are um, those who have been uh, chosen to serve and who do so with honor and dignity. And we will truly miss him. We know that you welcome him with the Easter morn and the sound of trumpets. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In the early days, a famous evangelist called Brownlow North had lived a life that was kind of wild and loose before he got in the pulpit. So once, just before he was about to go give his sermon up front, he received a a letter that recounted a shameful and embarrassing series of events that he had been engaged in. North's stomach was turning as he read this letter, for it ended with this warning. If you have the gall to preach tonight, I'll stand up and expose you. So North took the letter, and he fell on his knees. A few minutes later, he was indeed in the pulpit, and he began his message by reading that very letter at the start of his sermon and read it to the end. And he said, I want to make it clear that this letter is perfectly true. I am ashamed of what I have read and what I have done. And I come tonight not as one who is perfect, but as one who is forgiven. God used that letter and the balance of his ministry almost as a magnet to bring people to Jesus Christ. And today's reading on John 17 speaks about the truth. And it's often referred to as Jesus' high priestly prayer. He's about to leave those disciples and go to the cross and die. And he prays this parting prayer of concern for his followers. He prays that they might be protected in God's name and be one, one, be unified, be strong despite the absence of their rabbi. And Christ prays that God will protect them from the evil one. For disciples do not belong to this world. And finally, Jesus asks his heavenly Father to sanctify them in the truth. This is the heart of what I want to talk about this morning, to be sanctified in the truth. What does it mean to be sanctified in the truth? First of all, sanctify from the Greek, of course, means to be set aside for accomplishing God's work in the world. To be set aside for accomplishing God's work in the world. This is our Christian calling in a nutshell, isn't it? We have a special assignment that should permeate everything we do in this world, namely being shaped by God as his apprentice to be his witnesses. Frederick Beekner, a pastor and prolific Christian writer, explains the process of sanctification more colorfully than I do. So I ask you to listen to his words. He says, In Beauty and the Beast... It's only when the beast discovers that beauty really loves him in all his ugliness that he himself becomes beautiful. 
In the experience of St. Paul, it is only when a person discovers that God really loves him in all his unloveliness that he himself starts to become godlike. Paul's word for this gradual transformation of a sow's ear into a silk purse is sanctification. And he sees it as the second stage in the process of salvation. Being sanctified, says Beekner, is a long and painful stage because with part of himself or herself, the sinner prefers the sin. Just as with part of himself, the beast prefers his glistening snout and curved tusks. But little by little, the forgiven man and woman start to become the forgiving man and the healed man a healing man and the loved woman, a loving woman. God does most of it, but the end process is eternal life. Now let's look back at that opening story that I told with this insight. Put yourselves in the preacher's place. A letter arrives right in the middle of an important event. The letter outlines your past indiscretions, and embarrassing deeds. The public disclosure of this content could shatter your reputation, damage your ratings, send tremors into a cherished love relationship, end your career dreams, or silence your freedom to speak out for Jesus. Do you read it aloud and claim God's mercy? Jesus once said, the truth will set you free. Now, our first human inclination, of course, the desire the evil one plants in us is to hide the naked truth, to build up a defense and safeguard our appearance, rationalize why we did what we did, to blame others that were involved. It's the classic sinful response inherited from good old Adam and Eve. We prefer our glistening snout and curved tusks We've seen countless examples of this played out in our society from business executives involved in millions of dollars that are strangely disappearing to justify our personal extramarital affairs or the dent in dad's new car. Our fundamental human weakness is that we are lovers of the lie. We are God not dependent creatures. We don't easily acknowledge our own ugliness nor place ourselves at God's feet to be molded. God is ushered to the sidelines, benched by our pride, while we play a game with the self-starters and applaud this world's values. We're so readily tempted by the lie that Christ knows will destroy us that we can avoid death and save ourselves by our own blood, sweat, and tears. We are attracted by American idols who sustain their influence by their own blood, sweat, and tears and money and media and popular votes. Stop. Jesus prays today that God will protect us from this dead end with his truth, 
Like a Teflon coating for our souls, Jesus asked God to set us aside for kingdom work. To do so faithfully, we need to be immersed and integrated in God's truth, not this world's truth. So what is the truth that saves us? There are particular truths we know, like gravity holds down the earth and water takes three forms, steam and ice and liquid, but I'm not talking about these basic truths that we easily embrace. Jesus is talking today about the truth, a matter of spiritual life and death. The belief that God alone is the creator and author of our lives, and God loves us unconditionally in our ugliness, so much, in fact, that he saves us by his death and resurrection of son Jesus. The truth is we are the strongest. We are the strongest when we are weakest. Like the preacher in today's story, when we are knocked from our high horses, when we lose control, when we are humbled and even fearful, when we do not have all the answers, when we learn our limitations, we are on the threshold of redemption. When we are down on our knees, asking God alone to lift us up, and only by his grace, then, ironically and paradoxically, we have something miraculous to offer the world. The God who comes to our broken heart heals us with forgiveness and turns us from the beast into beautiful magnets for Jesus' mission. God's truth is told when we sing the lyrics of this song. You are my all in all. All that we are, all that we have, all that we hope to be, we give to you. We give to you for you are our all in all. Learning to live by that truth is the process of sanctification. Jesus prays for us to begin today. But listen to these further words of challenge by biblical commentator John Stott. He says, To walk in the truth is more than to give assent to it. It means to apply it to one's behavior. He who walks in the truth is an integrated Christian in whom there is no dichotomy between profession of your faith and the practice of it. On the contrary, there is in him or her an exact correspondence between creed and conduct. <clears throat> Perhaps one of the simplest and most profound Bible verses to help us with our daily process of sanctification in God's truth is Psalm 46, verse 10. Be still. Be still and know that I am God. Or be silent and recognize who is the author and redeemer of your life, your all in all. Listen to my words, says the Lord, and do not fill up your lives with the idle chatter of material society. 
Christ will point you in the right direction if you will only ask him. He has come to show you the power of my love, my plan for your future, abundant joy and everlasting life. So seize it. Take it. It's there for you. In closing, ponder creative writer Frederick Beekner's insight into another story in John's Gospel where Jesus has been arrested and appears before his interrogator, Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor. When Jesus says that he has come to bear witness to the truth, Pilate asks him, What is truth? Contrary to traditional view that his question is cynical, it is possible that Pilate asks it with a lump in his throat. Instead of truth, Pilate has only expedience. His decision to throw Jesus to the wolves is expedient. Pilate views man as alone in the universe, with nothing but his own courage and ingenuity to see him through. It's enough to choke up anybody. Pilate asks, what is truth? And for years there have been politicians, scientists, theologians, philosophers, poets, and so on to tell him the answer. They sound, the sound that they make is like the sound of empty pails falling down the cellar stairs. Jesus doesn't answer Pilate's question. What is truth? Jesus just stands there. Stands and stands there. Amen.